This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Sophia Dubois. I write every week in the New European on the music scene across Europe and the UK. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello Snowflakes and welcome back to the New European Podcast, a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. My name is Steve Anglesey, I'm the editor of the New European. If you enjoy what we do, please join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On this podcast, I'll be talking to James Bohr, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, about whether COP26 will be any COP. How can Boris Johnson's Britain be trusted as an honest broker to help the world sort out climate change when it behaves dishonestly in so many ways? And is the fact that Putin and Xi Jinping aren't turning up a bit like the Emperor and Darth Vader not turning up for Return of the Jedi? And we'll also be touching on the news of a terrible week in Westminster. Is a ban on social media anonymity the best way to respond to a tragedy that doesn't seem to have had much to do with social media? Is it just a good idea anyway? I'll be getting James's views on that. So coming up, James Ball. But first, the events last week in Leon C have no doubt inspired many of us to ponder leaving the country. But what about those people who already have done so? Well, there are signs that some British expats, and I say expats because remember, we only call people migrants when they don't look like us, may be returning because of Brexit fallout. While British citizens legally resident in Spain before January the 1st have got the right to stay, the snowbirds who would normally be leaving Britain around this time of year can no longer see out winter and spring in their sunshine holiday homes. That's because of the three-month limit on tourist stays since we left the EU. 
Now, here's a property expert, Robert Barnhard, and he was quoted as saying this week, a lot of retired British people are starting to sell up. They used to come down here in September or October, then they'd stay till April or May for the six months of better weather. But now they could only come for 90 days. And of course, those returning Brits are going to be older people, aren't they? And therefore, they're more likely to increase the strain on our already beleaguered NHS. A Darren Parminter has also been quoted this week. He's been resident in Spain for 32 years. He's a councillor near Alicante. And he says that the reduced flight of the snowbirds is going to be the start of a vicious circle that sees the end of the Costa del Sol dream for retired British people. He said, for the last 35 years, we've had a steady number of people coming out and retiring here. They come on holidays, then they buy their holiday home where they're going to come and retire. Some people will unfortunately die, but new people will come in. After the 1st of January, the fact is it's not so easy to come to Spain, he continued. So our fear is that people wanting to retire here will then start slowly falling. That will affect future people coming to visit because their family and friends aren't here. So they don't come and visit those people and then those visitors don't look to buy a property for the future. So just to summarise that, because of Brexit, we're seeing that the little parts of Spain that were going to be forever England disappearing and the expats head back to Britain. And a certain irony, isn't there, that both Darren Parbenter and Ian Barnhart were talking to the Pro-Leave Daily Express, some of whose ageing readers may now be considerably less keen than they once were on the idea of foreigners having to go back to where they came from. Coming up, James Ball. But first, I want to tell you about an excellent new podcast from The New European. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. It's a fantastic listen. It's available wherever you got this podcast. And don't forget, too, that if you want to be sure of getting a copy of our newspaper and access to our online archive, you can support The New European by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Now, COP26 is almost upon us, but will it be good COP26 or bad COP26? COP26, of course, it's the international summit where Britain's going to pull all the world together and knock everyone's heads together and sort out climate change once and for all. Get climate change done. Listeners to the New European, of course, are a bit sceptical about it. Russ Gale says, realistically, this government isn't interested in climate change. It'll be all big talk and no action. David Barron says, hot air is their only contribution. And Rob Monroe says, my new strategy is to stop worrying and learn to love the bomb. Uh, learn to love catastrophic climate heating. Joining us once again is James Ball, Pulitzer Prize winner, global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Is there nothing he he cannot do? Hello, James. So I can't ride a bike, so uh, there's that. I can't, and it's not that I never learned, it's that I tried to learn and I failed. So so yeah, there is that. But uh, that aside, pleasure to be here. Well, I don't see that in your otherwise boastful Twitter bio, but we'll, <laughs> we'll move on from, from that. Um, there are lots of low expectations going into this summit. There's no Putin, there's no Xi, there's all the corporate sponsors are saying it's chaotic. And When, when expectations are set low, I, I usually imagine that something amazing is going to happen or something better than expected. Is, is, there, any, is there any cause to think that something better than expected might, might come out of this? I mean, I mean, you'd hope so, and I'd, I'd love to be wrong on this, really. But um, I think the problem here is that actually through the year... Boris has been hyping COP as if it's kind of, you know, as I say in the column this week, as if it's like Live 8 or something. You know, it's almost as if, you know, the way Carrie or his team 
convinced him that COP was a big thing was to make it sound like a big global party or, you know, the, the feel good factor is back or that kind of thing, rather than being a quite pedantic, quite important, quite grindy kind of climate conference um, that's sort of more about agreeing concrete targets to implement previous treaties than doing a big splashy new treaty. And so we've been hearing about COP right through the year. There's been quite big sort of, uh, you know, staffers put on it and ministers put on it and all of this. And yet the closer it gets, the more it looks like it's all mouth and no trousers. You know, several of the key players aren't coming, maybe not a huge surprise in cheese case, but uh, not a good thing given the importance of the developing world. And so it sort of looks like they wanted to get something of a home run and say Britain's at the forefront of saving the earth. And, you know, it shows that whereas relevant in the 21st century is in the 20th. It looks like they wanted to do that and they're going to miss. I mean, he has thrown quite a bit at it, hasn't he? Alok Sharma has, has racked up a enormous his carbon footprint must be enormous. <laughs> Travelling, he's done Allegra Stratton has gone from one sort of non-job to another non-job. D- does it does it matter that um, that Boris Johnson and Britain have, have have got a credibility problem when we're trying to talk about? long-term commitments and the importance of sticking to agreements that you signed ages ago? Well, with with Europe, you know, Perfidious Albion is uh, is almost as old as England itself. But, um, you know, with Europe, it doesn't really look good that we've spent most of the year trying to rip up a treaty we agreed sort of a year ago um, and then try to get people to make binding international commitments at the end of it. With the rest of the world, I think the problem's a little bit trickier in that it's quite a tough ask that we're all making on the less developed and developing world. We're asking people who haven't had all of the benefits of the high carbon era, you know, who are only just starting to hit what we call the global middle class, which is basically not subsistence farming. You know, people might finally be able to heat their homes or to get a scooter instead of a bike or get aircon possibly, or just get some more meat or dairy in their diets. And it's quite hard to say to those people, actually, can you not do that, please? You know, we and we, we haven't been great at messaging that and getting this sort of idea of, hey, other countries, you know, we need to cut our emissions. We need you not to increase yours. Can you try and get wealthier in green ways? You know, it's people people in China, I think, have every bit as much right to eat pork or beef or dairy as we do. And it's not reasonable to say, actually, if you start doing so, we're all screwed. So we have a tough ask trying to ask the less developed world to, if not decarbonize, to not get up to our levels. And so we need everything we could possibly have in the bag to uh, support it. And instead, we have not only sort of cut the headline of aid, but we've redirected it and uh, the Treasury and Rishi Sunak have done a whole bunch of clever, clever little tricks to reduce it even more. And if you're trying to rely on the goodwill of people with very little reason to have it, having screwed them over in the middle of a pandemic for really fairly trivial budget savings at the same time as you have done a beggar thy neighbour game on uh, vaccines and stopped them getting hold of those all that well, you can't you don't really have very much in the tank even if you're putting in a big and sincere effort on climate and countries don't just treat every issue as completely separate what you do in one area has consequences in another 
it's, this is this is a, something that Boris Johnson has not really been confronted with so far in his life, but it, it feels like he is going to be confronted now. I mean, China are clearly people who we wanted to to persuade. Xi Jinping unlikely to be there now, barring a massive change of heart. What is the state of our relationship with with China now? We we, we you know we, we've nosed off the Americans. The Europeans all dislike us again, apart from the Poles and Hungarians. It would seem. Um, what, what what about the Chinese? Because as you rightly say in this piece, what our demands are, especially since we left the EU, are, are fueling the Chinese boom, aren't they? I mean, they absolutely are. And so we need Chinese goods. We need these things to be coming in. We've developed a reliance on them. But politically, we're in quite a difficult place with China. And I think we probably should be in quite a difficult place with China. Uh, the UK retains a special interest in Hong Kong. And China has absolutely cracked down on freedoms there and is cracking down on activists and, and political speech and education and free media. And the UK has been uncharacteristically generous in offering visas to help people get over. I think there's almost 5 million people eligible for those visas. You know, there's also been various bits of sanctions, which has led to China sanctioning British MPs. Uh, so in turn, the Chinese ambassador uh, was disinvited from the Palace of Westminster, uh, which in you know diplomatic circles is you know full handbags at dawn stuff. You've also got the sort of human rights situation with the Uyghurs in uh, yes. Xinjiang pro- province. There could be as many as a million people in internment camps there, which again some UK politicians have been quite vocal about, and I think to their credit. Um, When you then add in that there's been some trade and security disputes, especially over Huawei, a huge Chinese technology giant, whether or not they could be involved in UK infrastructure. And very strangely, we've let them be involved in the wired internet for ages, in 3G and 4G, and it's suddenly been decided at 5G that they can't be and that we should rip out some of the existing stuff. You can see why, uh, you know, Xi, uh, Xi Jinping hasn't travelled out of China since pre-coronavirus. Why on earth would he make the UK his first trip? Yes, exactly. I mean, it is just uh, it is just a, a catalogue of, uh, of of disasters. I, I'm, I mean, maybe we'll we'll try and tempt him by offering him one of our northeast football clubs. To, to, <laughs> to it seems to be what we do with human rights abusers now nowadays. Well, I'm sure Sunderland would welcome some uh, cash at the moment, so maybe. Yes, exactly. What about our own record on climate change under Boris Johnson? Because that that did seem to be something that the Tories were touting uh, in the run-up to this, as, as you mentioned. You know, originally we, well, recently rather, we've had talk about new power stations, uh, the need to get more gas in, and, and and that's been tarnished somewhat. But but the UK's the UK's record on 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 this recently is actually not bad, is it? it it's not. The recent visuals are pretty terrible, to be honest. Yeah. And let's be honest, the most the actions of the most recent government are pretty daft you know the the heat pumps plan that came out this week is a bit of a day late dollar short yes uh, everything is sort of an ambition rather than a target yes. you can sort of tell the tories kind of want to be taking this issue seriously as long as it doesn't change anything else at all and the treasury 
I mean, not just Rishi Sunak, who clearly is quite a free market libertarian at heart, but the Treasury hates spending money and hates letting anyone else do it and hates thinking in anything other than the shallowest of economic terms. Um, You know, if I could scrap any government department, I would scrap the Treasury in a heartbeat. And, uh, you know, it's just institutionally got a terrible culture. But uh, so you have a sort of result of everything comes through looking a bit daft. The government sort of aren't massively to blame with how much we need gas at the moment. There was a fire at a powering interconnector that helped supply up to, I think, about 5% of our peak grid uh, on by buying electricity from European power grids, which, you know, is, is sometimes you're unlucky. But things like considering bringing back fracking, which is only at considering at the moment and is unlikely, I think, and that brief plan to build a coal mine up in the northeast, it was actually for coal for use in making steel, but that's still environmentally awful. Just mean the optics are quite bad. The reality, as you sort of hinted, is pretty good. Mm. The UK is genuinely a world leader in offshore wind power, and offshore wind power is a lot less contentious than onshore. Uh, which we're also pretty good at. You know, we are an island in the Atlantic. We should take advantage of the one thing we have in abundance, especially because a lot of places that get a lot of wind tend to get a lot of really damaging hurricane strength, etc. winds. And we don't. We are really in the sweet spot. And that's good. It means we've got high tech manufacturing jobs. It means we've got an advantage at that. It means our grid's getting better. There's other success stories but our progress has stalled and it's stalled because the government won't really commit money and faith to actually trying to transition to something new. Mm, it's the uh, it's the the money question versus the well it, it was I think it was David Cameron wasn't it who who uh, who was very green and then uh, he wanted to get rid of all the green crap by the uh, by the end. <laughs> well yeah. it's one of those where they if they could go green without changing anything else they'd yeah. really happily do it. They just can't really accept it's a trade-off, just in the same way, really, as, and almost as damagingly, some people on the left like to say you can't go green if you still want economic growth, which sort of sounds a bit hipster here. You know, you can kind of go, well, it means we should care more about each other and less about things, and do we need to accumulate stuff? It sounds effing horrendous if you're in a less developed country to go, actually, you can't go green without, uh, you know, and have growth. Luckily, you can, but everyone seems to want to use the environment to suit their general politics rather than actually fixing this sort of catastrophic issue that could cost millions, if not billions of lives. Yes, indeed. Well, we're well used to uh, not discussing elephants in the room on uh, on this podcast. This is, <laughs> but this one is even more significant, isn't it, than the one we've been talking about for, oh God, five years or so now. What's, what is the expectation of this then? Because as you said right at the top, this is supposed to be a, a fairly serious event, isn't it? It isn't just a glad-handing summit for a weekend when um, when world leaders gather and then something is hastily scribbled down and they all sign up to it or don't sign up to it in a Trump style. This is supposed to be where civil servants sit down and they actually not through what is going to... the commitments that have been given and produce something substantial. What's what 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 are you expecting to come out of it? So it should be said, uh, China and Russia are still sending their delegations. And so it's not like they're boycotting the whole thing. So we should see an agreement come out of it. And 
but because the sort of nature of these COP summits is that they ratchet, you know, each one builds from what was agreed the last time. What I would expect to see is something that can be called the most ambitious global green deal ever just in the same way as you know if you take the tallest building in the world and put even one more brick on it Mm. you've uh, just made the tallest building in the world and so what I would expect to see is a fairly modest ratchet you know not the kind of decisive thing that we need to really start keeping one and a half degrees or really even two degrees warming as the limit I suspect we'll see something where You'll see the politicians, certainly the British ones, come out and say this is the you know toughest ever global climate deal, which will be true. But you will see the experts sort of coming out and saying it is nowhere near enough. Yes. I mean, whatever happens, I'm expecting Boris Johnson to smash through a Walmart climate change while dressed up as the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> uh, and then the uh, George Bush style mission accomplished banner folds down behind him. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I know you've got to go. Before before we do let you go, I, I, I did say that we would sort of briefly talk about the, the fallout from the awful events in Leon C last week and see what you think of fitting responses. The, the idea, I mean, you're somebody who is active on social media. You've also received, as many people have, some fairly nasty abuse on social media, but you're an investigative journalist. You know the value of anim- anonymity for whistleblowers on social media. What's your take on the idea that in response to what happened to David Amos, um, the, there should be an end of, of anonymity on social media. I th- I think there was a. Com- I think part of this is because of UK contempt laws. People are very restricted in what they can say about the actual motives of the killer and so on. And I think it has to be communicated. This isn't the media's choice. This is something that has to be done. And so when people can't talk about the main thing, people cast around for something else because they want to react to something mm. as awful as this kind of murder. But you know, as I actually said on social media, this sort of issue of ending online anonymity isn't a case of shutting the stable door after the horse is bolted it's shutting the stable door after a chip pan fire the two have absolutely nothing to do with one another i think the the valuable conversation you could be having given we know that this murder is being treated sorry this killing is being treated as a terrorist incident that the individual was said to be known to the prevent program now how come so In each attack, each terrorist incident we've seen in the last decade, most, if not all, of the perpetrators have been known to security services and or the PREVENT programme. So something is going wrong between getting people on the radar of the services and getting through to them successfully doing attacks. That's the debate that we might need to have. It's not even necessarily a wider radicalisation one. Now, there was a, a sort of useful adjacent debate, which was the one about how we treat our politicians and how we treat our politics. And while that may not fuel to this one, we know it's unhealthy. We know it contributes to the climate of fear. We know it's why a record number of MPs have panic alarms and so on. And so that was a useful debate. But I think MPs as legislators cast around for legislation, and this has nothing to do with it, and also would not do what they want It would stifle the free speech of millions of people. It would stifle whistleblowers. But if you think that it ends online anonymity, I will only note that Facebook has had a real name policy from the very day it began. And if you think Facebook has no abuse problem, I have a bridge to sell you. 
Yes, you should probably have a look on uh, on Facebook. Uh, well, I, I think we will talk about all of that again. Uh, but my thanks, as always, to, to James Ball. Thank you so much for joining us, James. To read James on COP26 and to get access to his archive of articles on UK politics, Brexit, everything else, subscribe to The New European at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And finally, it's the Hall of Shame. Now, I mean, is it the right time to be shaming politicians after the events of the last week? I mean, I, th- I think I think we've got to carry on. We've got one of the worst governments I can remember, supported by the most docile media I can remember. It's steered by the least talented cabinet I can remember. It's led by the biggest spoofer to be in number 10 that I can remember. All true believers now in the most misguided bit of policy that I can remember. And we shouldn't really be scared to say that. And there's a very long way between that and some of the poison that's been hurled at politicians from both sides by people who won't even put their names to it. So Julia Hartley Brewer is in the Hall of Shame this week, and she's in there for tweeting this reply to a news story about the death of Colin Powell. She was offended because it called him the first African-American US Secretary of State. And she wrote, it's sad news, but you could just have said former US Secretary of State. And just in case... Uh, we weren't clear about her motives there. Julia Hartley Brewer then tweeted, I'm not a racist, which is why I don't define people by their skin colour. Colin Powell's ethnicity is not the reason that his passing has been reported today. Well, I mean, isn't it quite incredible that a journalist, and Julia Hartley Brewer is a journalist, doesn't see that the fact that Colin Powell grew up in Harlem, he was the son of poor immigrants from Jamaica, his dad was a clerk, his mum was a seamstress, and he was born in 1937 in the tail end of the segregation era. And, and he became Secretary of State of the United States of America. And that's why, that's why, that's the reason that his death got more coverage than, say, the deaths of Warren Christopher or George Schultz, people like that. Isn't it going to be odd if when Madeleine Albright passes away, people don't mention that she was the first woman to be Secretary of State? Is it is it racist in Julia Hartley Brewer's world to say that Diane Abbott was the first black woman MP. And there is a racist in Julia Hartley Brewer's world. She said, I'm not a racist, which is why I don't define people by their skin colour. So are racists then people who do define people by their skin colour and, and, and say that it's, it's a, an exceptional achievement to be born the son of poor immigrants in Harlem in a time of segregation and become the first African-American US Secretary of State. So does that mean that in Julia Hartley Brewer's world, the people who are racist are us? After all that, I'm craving a bit of sanity. But instead, let's go to Anwidicum Corner. Let's say I like Igad Harumph, it's Anwidicum Corner. And uh, every week I read out the most ridiculous bits from Anwidicum's column in the Daily Express. And like us, Anwidicum has been making predictions about COP26. And she says this, China makes the world's biggest contribution to producing CO2s. But it would be countries like ours that comes with comes up with even more ways of making its citizens' lives a misery like electric cars and green boilers. If Anne Whittacombe really thinks that those are the top two ways this government's making its citizens' lives a misery, what a charmed life Anne Whittacombe must lead. Because we've got ludicrous housing prices, we've got botched COVID response, we've got a looming NHS crisis because of it, we've got food and fuel shortages, we've got rising inflation, we've got red tape from Brexit hitting businesses. What's really awful, though, it's those electric cars and green boilers, isn't it? But foremost in the hall of shame this week is Boris Johnson. 
because I want to end where I began with COP26. Boris Johnson wrote in The Sun this week about climate change, and this is what he wrote. He wrote, while we're going to have to make some pretty major changes in the way we heat our homes, the green shirts of the boiler police are not going to kick in your door with their sandal-clad feet and seize at carrot point your trusty old combi. And that just says it all about Boris Johnson, doesn't it? When he needs to wake the country up to what's at stake at COP26 and bring people together behind it, he just offers jibes about eco-fascism, which imply that climate change isn't really a real problem. It's just a bit of local difficulty that old Bozza is going to square off with Swampy and his mates. When real modern leadership is needed, all Boris Johnson can offer us are weak jokes from the 1980s. These are serious times, and he's not a serious man. Is Boris Johnson the best we can do? Seriously? That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to James Bourne. Thanks to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. Episodes of the New European Podcast are now released every Thursday. If you enjoyed this one, why not subscribe and rate and review it on your podcatcher of choice. If you'd like to enjoy more podcasts from the New European, check out Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, please visit our new website and join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social media, you can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow the New European on Twitter. It's at the New European. And you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. So until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.